0: I'm V.E. Schwab, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it.
1: You are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast.
2: This week on the show... I mean, it's been incredible, I have to say, like, during the, the darkest parts of, I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore, the work is too much, um, it's too stressful. You know, I get e- I'll get get an email from, you know, like, a 17-year-old g- girl who, who just writes me and they're like, I haven't seen something like this and I love it and that's, it's just, that's the exact reason I do this. Here are
1: your hosts, Jamie Green and Shiri Sondheimer. Welcome back to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on any of your favorite social channels at The GBB Podcast. You can download us from any place that you get fine podcasts, such as, oh, I don't know, iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or... Tune in or um, Spotify and maybe someday soon um, Pandora. Apparently they're doing podcasts now and so we'll see. Um, but I am your host, Jamie Green. Uh, you can find me at The RoarBots pretty much everywhere. And joining me this week is Shiri.
0: Hello. Hi. You can How are find- you doing? I'm good. I just got back from California. A what are you doing out wonky. there? I went uh, to be my best friend's holiday party date (laughs) she's been inviting me for like three years and i had a southwest credit that fortuitously needed to be used by february so
1: yeah now i set you up for that because i knew where you went obviously but i saw some pictures of this party and it looked
0: pretty swanky it was amazing it was in the old um federal reserve building in san francisco that is now a event venue and it was beautiful
1: Yeah, I I was a little bit jealous.
0: something to be said for corporate America kids.
1: (laughs) Yeah, although, you know, I I was going to say it doesn't work that way for everybody, but I don't really work in corporate America. I work for a nonprofit, which is a (laughs) way different thing. (laughs) I think in 10 years we've had one actual legit Christmas party or holiday party. So, uh, yeah, it looked swanky. It looked nice, and uh, I'm I'm sure you had a lot of fun. I did. Well, welcome back. We're glad to have you back here on the East Coast. Coast. I mean, you're east-ish. You're you're east enough.
0: I'm I'm east enough. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you're east of those mountains, so exactly. uh, that's good enough. Exactly. But we are talking this week to S. A. Chakraborty. Uh Shannon is her name, but she goes by S. A. When uh, on her books. And I have to say, and I don't want to speak for you, Shiri, but I'm gonna say something, and then you can run with it if you believe that I am speaking the truth. Okay. And that. These two books that she has out now, well, one book that's out now, "City of Brass," and the book, the second book in the series, which comes out in January, "Kingdom of Copper," came out of nowhere and blew us away with how good they were.
0: Agreed. They were two of my favorite books that I have read this year. Now
1: they're big old honkin' books. Like they're they're not they're not bree- easy breezy reads. Uh, and I had had the first book, City of Brass, sitting on my shelf for quite a while, and I knew that you did too. And we had talked about it, and you mm-hmm. had heard good things about it. And I was like, "Well, maybe I should read it. Maybe I should that should be my next one." And then I finally, well, I think you started reading it before I did. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, "Dude, you need to start this book." And uh, as we've established, you are a much speedier reader than I am. So you like breeze through them, and I was like, still like not struggling, but still making my way through the first one because I'm a much slower reader. Um, but it was like, the enti- with every page, it was like, why did I not read this sooner?
0: They're amazing. Um, and based in, um, you know, we, we discovered in, in speaking with her, based in Islamic folklore, which I have studied to some extent, but had no idea that this was part of. Um, I had no idea that, that Islamic folklore contain this and Persian folklore contain this entire jinn society um yeah. and I wish I had cuz it's fascinating so
1: I mean in a nutshell this is kind of like the 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 trope story of you know regular person quote unquote regular person ends up in a fantasy world finds out that they're actually part God or part magic or part wizard or what have you, you know. It's, it's it's the Harry Potter story. It's the it's the Percy Jackson story. It's you know it's it's been told again and again. But this is set in Middle Eastern cultures in a Muslim culture, and it is all about the jinn and um and 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 magic that exists among the different demons and gods. And it was phenomenally good. Well,
0: and let us not overlook the other major difference, which is that the character who discovers that they are magical is a woman.
1: True. Very good point. Very good point. She is a, so she begins the story as sort of like a a thief. You a thief know, she and a con she, woman. She's a con woman. That's what it is. Because she she pretends to basically read fortunes, but she uses the knowledge that she gleans to 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 rob people blind.
0: And she has some healing skill, but she doesn't really know where it comes from.
1: Mm-hmm. She can't explain um, it. She just knows that she has some kind of a touch.
0: Yeah, that works. She works with an with an herbalist, but again, she doesn't really know where any of it comes from. She doesn't really have any good control over it. Mm-hmm. um it's just something that sometimes happens
1: yeah but i mean we're not going to sit here and go through the story and i mean it's that's how it starts it goes from there and like i said this is not slim reading so these are like these are she tells incredibly intricate woven together stories that are woven together with lots of different strands so i mean if you think of like something like Game of Thrones in the expanse of the world and how many characters there are and the the different relationships among them. It's kind of on par with that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but set in this Muslim Middle Eastern culture.
0: And she has um, multiple narrators in each book, which I don't always like, but I liked here because I liked getting different perspectives on each of the events that were happening Um, She does it really well. She does it the way that um, the guys who write The Expanse do it. Mm -hmm. Um, It does not always work for me, but it worked for me here. And she sticks with the same characters in both books, which is helpful. Yeah. Um, We talked to someone else about this, and I cannot remember who it was, unfortunately. Um, But we also talked about it in the context of The Expanse, about how the narrators change but Holden is always one of them, Mm -hmm. Um, and how that's helpful because you have one voice that's always there. She actually sticks with the same narrative voices in both books, and that was helpful in this huge, intricate story that could potentially be a little bit confusing, except that you have these different voices to kind of carry you through. Um, and it is the most memorable characters who get to tell the story. So that's also helpful.
1: Right. Um, we, we do talk obviously quite a bit about these books. So it's, it's going to be a trilogy. The first book is out now. The second book comes out in January. She is in the middle of writing or revising the third one. Now we don't, we there's tried no to re- get a
0: date, but we couldn't. Yeah,
1: there's no release date for that. Um, but one of the things that we both – Shiri and I both find fascinating is that these are her first books. These mm-hmm. are her first works. And we were kind of joking afterwards that she fell into a book contract. She basically started writing these books for herself as just sort of like a, Hist- a personal exercise to like creative exercise to sort of get something out. She and called she just it kind of, fan
0: fiction, historical. Yeah, it's, I, it's fan fiction to history rather than fan fiction to a fandom. Yeah. So I'm not sure that's what I would call it, but that's what she calls it. And it's her work. She called work, it yeah, so.
1: historical fan fiction.
0: Um, yeah. And then
1: she just sort of fell into a book contract with a major publisher and got, <laughs> you know, three huge books out of it. And, uh, you know, anybody who... Is trying to write or trying to publish, and is going through all the rejections. Um, you might find a little bit here to sort of turn up your nose at and be like, huh, "She didn't struggle, uh, but she did." You know, what I mean, it's the, her uh, her story isn't all roses and in all perfection. Everybody goes through a different story and a different path to success. But right. uh, for some people, uh, for 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 Shannon Chakraborty, for Jane Yolen. Uh, they, It was just fortuitous. They happened to be at the right place at the right time and know the right people and have the right story to tell. Right. I think that if this were a different story or if she had a different um, life experience, then maybe she wouldn't have, quote unquote, so easily fallen into publishing these books.
0: And don't think that when we say that, we're saying that it's not deserved because it no. is
1: no absolutely. these books are yeah.
0: phenomenal and you know they're each they're each pushing 700 pages and i read them each in a maybe four or five days like i told people and now to and now i get to, to, to
1: turn my nose up at you and be like <laughs> you don't yeah, know what it's I, like to struggle to read <laughs>
0: You know, I basically said nobody talk to me. I'm reading, <laughs> um, which is not something I get I do very often. Book has a book has to be pretty special for me to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah, these are good. They come with every recommendation I can give. Uh, I have not gotten to the second one yet, even though it's sitting on my shelf. Um, but it, uh, the first one was just just that good that you know, if somebody's saying. Would you have anything to recommend? What have you read lately that's really good? You know, I'm looking to to branch out, read something different, read something I haven't read before. Mm-hmm. This is the first book out of my mouth for yep. anybody who, who is asking that now.
0: We actually, um, even a friend of ours was asking for recommendations for his teenage daughter and we recommended this series.
1: Yep, absolutely. And I think he did. He took us up. He did. He took, he took you up on it and he yep. got it for, for, for the holidays. He did. Well, we're going to stop lathering. We're going to get into it now. Like I say, we talk a lot about City of Brass, Kingdom of Copper. We talk a lot about how these books came to be and, and how the story, how the books came to be as books, but how the story also came out of her culture and her religion and her faith and belief and, and her community and who she wrote the books for and who is resonating with. Uh, it was just a really good conversation, I think. Thank you guys so much for coming back week after week. Really do appreciate it. Hitting subscribe, telling people about us, interacting with us online. Like I said, you can find us pretty much everywhere that you can download podcasts at this point. The Great, Big, Beautiful Podcast, absolutely everywhere. We do hope that you hit subscribe, come back. We've got a lot of really, really good interviews coming up. And they really, I, I look at the interviews I have coming up, the episodes that are coming up in the next month, month and a half, and they're really, really incredibly diverse. Um, just in terms of the types of people and what industries that they're working in. But every single one of them to a T is a great conversation that I cannot wait to share with you guys. So hit subscribe if you don't already and come back and we will see you next week. Take care. Um, So I have a lot of questions, but I guess I wanted to go back and ask if there was one moment or 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 an event in your life that you can point to that said you know what that's the moment that's when i wanted to become a writer that's that what that's what set me on this journey
2: there isn't actually um because i kind of fell into this backwards Mm -hmm. i didn't necessarily want to be a writer i wanted to be a historian Um, and it was something that I just kind of started toying with because I liked science fiction and fantasy. I'd written a little Harry Potter fan fiction when I was in high school, but I never thought about this as, oh, this is a career I could pursue. I just wasn't kind of raised that way to think that this was an option for me. Um, So it was more just small steps of like, let me work on this. Let me show it to my husband. Let me show it to some friends. All of a sudden, you know, years later, I'm like, wait, I have an agent. and Now my book is going to auction. It was like, I realized after I was like, Oh, yeah, I guess I can call myself a writer now.
1: (laughs) I I think so. You've earned that at this point. (laughs) Well, you you, you mentioned fan fiction. I do want to ask you about that Harry Potter. We're going to come back to that. But (laughs) you have said in interviews before that, City of Brass began as what you called historical fan fiction. Now, when I hear fan fiction, I think of something (laughs) entirely different. So what do you mean by that?
2: So I mean by that, um, you know, taking steps several years ago originally i wanted to go the phd route i wanted to study the medieval islamic world and i had a whole bunch of areas that i really liked i liked 9th century baghdad i liked the indian ocean trading sphere and i liked the social history the culture his- cultural history some of these great stories of politicians and these cosmopolitan cities and i took a break from that the economy basically collapsed <laughs> and i needed a job so that i could continue eating and have having a family. Those are important. So I was working in a medical office and I told myself I'm going to go back to the PhD and the, and the graduate school route sometime. But I still liked to read about these worlds. I had my my bookshelf crammed with all of these history books. I read them for fun and for pleasure. And I kind of just wanted to like invent a little world that brought some of this stuff back um, that was, you know, took place in 9th century Baghdad. And because I was a fantasy fan, I was like, well, what if you added magic? Um, and then I started kind of writing these little short stories and set pieces, and it became kind of a game to myself because I wanted to, to set a fictional story, but one that didn't necessarily conflict with what any of our texts said about Jinn, about Suleiman. So it was just like this little game to myself of how to make these places and this build up this whole sort of quiet civilization that existed beyond human sight um, that I was never going to show anyone. Yeah. And just, it was, like I said, it was a little bit of fan fiction.
1: Yeah. So what led to that change of heart? What made you ultimately decide that, you know, this is, this has grown beyond something that I'm just doing for myself and I really want to share it?
2: That was a slow process. I mean, it began quite simply when my husband was like, what are you always doing on your computer? (laughs) And, you know, I showed it to him and he was like, you know, this is great. You should try to, you know, work on this more. And then, you know, it was like sort of a leap to find a a writer's group. I I work with the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. Um, They're a fantastic group. And I started working with them several years ago. And, you know, I would show a chapter and be terrified and think no one was going to like it or get it. Um, But I got great reception and, you know, I worked with them and just... You know, they were the ones that, you know, they kind of helped me pursue professional writing because I didn't know what an agent was. I Mm. didn't know any of these things. And it was kind of friends through there being like, you should try to query your work. And I'd be like, that's great. What does that mean? (laughs) Um, So, you know, I didn't and I never really expected anything to happen. Um, But I, you know, I ended up landing with an agent and then submitting and it just kind of took on a life of itself.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's, it's funny because when you talk to a lot of writers, especially first when, you know, right after they've published their first book, you make it sound very easy. And I know that it wasn't, but you make it sound like you just kind of fell into it, you know, and, and, and stood up and, oh, look, I have a book contract, you know, whereas I'm sure it didn't happen that simply or that quickly. But did you go through a lot of rejections? Like, did you go through a lot of time when you're like, well, maybe this really wasn't the right choice? Maybe I shouldn't have tried to shop it around?
0: Jamie's looking at me because he's been watching (laughs) me beat my head against the wall for like five years.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I definitely did. Um, It was interesting because I I did not expect to sell this book. I mean, at the point where I was querying and I knew a little bit more about publishing and the reality of publishing and the politics of publishing, I did not think many people were going to take a bet on a 500-page fantasy inspired by the medieval Islamic world. Yeah. Um, And the first rejections I got were exactly the rejections I was going to expect. You know, the polite ways of saying this is too foreign, this is too different, you know, people aren't going to understand. And I was okay with that because I had my expectations just at the floor. Um, I was, you know, it was kind of just, I wrote the book, I was like, let me see what happens. Um, And it was interesting, both interesting and slightly disheartening that... um, It really caught on, of course, when I had the offer of rep from my agent, Jenna Zantian, who is is new and has her own thing going on. And she was very passionate about the work. And, you know, once I had the offer of representation, a lot of these agents um, who had, you know, been saying things like, oh, it's too foreign. All Mm. of a sudden were like, oh, I'll take another look. So (laughs) it was it was the experience I expected. um, But it, it, you know, it ended up well.
1: Did you have to make any changes to the book? Like with those rejections and those those critiques that it was too foreign or that they couldn't take the risk on such a long book set in an unproven setting, I guess. Did they did they give any any feedback that you then took and reworked the book or did you just stick to your guns and say, this is the story that I was trying to tell?
2: I was able to stick to my guns and I think this is because I was just surrounded by a great team. My agent was incredibly supportive. My editor was completely, com- completely supportive my whole publishing team. Um, you know, now this was a privilege I had because I was able to select from different people. And, you know, you can have that conversation first off. And, you know, if you get on your, your like high horse of being like, this is what I'm doing. And I'm not italicizing, you know, the non-English words. And I'm, you know, this, I wrote this book for my community and I'm not changing this. You know, you see how people respond to that. Um, you know, and I worked... I chose the editor and the agent who were like, that's fantastic. You should totally do that. Yeah. Um, and it was great because they could give me feedback on, okay, there's ways you could explain this, but never take it out. Right. And it was also nice because they let me keep in a lot of parts of the book, small details that I knew would not be necessarily understood by a non-Muslim audience, but I wanted them there. I wanted them there for my Muslim readers. Of We have our own little Easter eggs of, Oh, you know, that's, we catch that that we're we can have that and not and it's okay that everybody else won't understand
1: right because ultimately that's who you were writing for correct
2: yes very much so
1: yeah um i i I wanted to ask i mean we don't typically go like into the weeds with books and characters but i want i was curious how much of yourself did you put into the character of nahi like how much of her story is your story
2: I think some of Nahri's story is my story. I think a little bit more of Ali's story is my story, yeah. which I'm never sure how to tell people considering how they feel about the character. But with Nahri, I really wanted to kind of get at the idea of being a newcomer in a place and having expectations put upon you. Um you know, she has imposter syndrome <laughs> times a hundred, which is something that I could definitely relate to. Um, but I also kind of wanted to work with what it's like to be new in a community. Um, I'm a convert myself, and I put a lot of that of that feeling of you're introduced and you're expected to know certain things and you know speak the right way and have the right small actions and small behaviors but if you're not raised in a certain way that's going to take years to learn um, if ever if you'll ever feel like you completely fit in so yeah. i definitely wanted to have that when it came to nahri yeah. um, and even just you know the ideas of you know how you would form new relationships if you weren't necessarily brought up a certain way of that sort of feeling of being a stranger and on the outside
1: yeah sorry go ahead (laughs) sherry
2: what are some of the
0: elements of of the islamic mythology that you find the most intriguing you know intriguing enough that you decided to include them in the fiction
2: I think the original concept of jinn, which is um, quite poorly understood by many, many sort of outside on the West, it's, you know, they, they think they're like, oh, it's Aladdin, and it's the big blue guy, and he grants wishes. <laughs> um, but, you know, jinn and the texts are fascinating. You know, they're these long lived creatures that live silently among us. Um, and, you You know they have their It's said they have their own societies and their own you know civilizations and as somebody who was really interested in history i found that fascinating because you know if i had a time machine and i could go back and visit all of these places i would love to so imagine if you know you were a silent observer to just centuries upon centuries of of humanity that's that's very cool to me so i i that was one of the things i really wanted to use and incorporate because i think it's fascinating
1: how much, I mean, I know you said that you you were, you know, in PhD and you took a lot of classes and a lot of research, but how much research did you do specifically for this book?
2: Um, or you know, books, people, I should say, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> people ask me this all the time and I'm never sure how to answer because it kind of was, the research almost came first mm. and the book was born of that and, and I'm fortunate in the position that I, I kind of know my particular feels enough to be to be writing a scene and go oh i need to know or check this and i can kind of go straight to the book or to the source that i need
1: mm-hmm.
2: so i still read about more um i had to do a bit more i wanted to pull in especially for the second book more about um medicine and some of the tr- traditional healing methods so i did read up more on that um but a lot of it just kind of comes from stuff I've already studied or stuff that I've always wanted to learn more about. Um, I, I had I have an interest in sea travel and, and, and the boats and everything that were used. So for another section, I needed to read a little bit more about that. Um, and it's it's great. I love being able to do it. How did you keep track of all the court politics? Do you have, like, a giant
0: murder board or, like, a giant string web or something? <laughs> I
2: don't have a giant mor- mur- murder board, but you know what? I like the idea of that. <laughs> we might have to work on that. Um, I don't know. I just, I you know, I have my, my background. I, I keep notes on, oh, you know, this happened and this happened, Um. But I like politics, um, you know, even before history, sort of international politics was going to be my thing. And I, I think um, for some reason, I it just kind of makes sense in my head. I try to kind of be like, OK, if how would this react and you can look Back in history, of okay, you had this situation and this is how these people reacted, um, or how we think you know, there's a lot to be said about you know, looking at politics today and thinking, okay, if you had this situation, how do people react, and just making it part of that. And I feel like if you keep it kind of natural and organic, it's easier to keep track of.
1: Is it hard for you to walk that line of keeping? the setting and and the culture is historically accurate but still be a fantasy like is is there a line at which you you try to stick close to so it's it's it could still be believable but still retain some of these you know fantastic elements
2: yeah i think i'm lucky in the fact that it's it's set in our world but it's set in sort of a slightly magical version so you know i can take a history thing and go okay Sailboats were not invented before this date or they did not have this certain ingredient before this date and not violate that. but that doesn't say, hey, once boats were invented, nobody said you know they couldn't be sailed by magic. Right. So it's kind of just adding adding to that. you know I try to try to stick with when certain things happen and, and certain facts um, and then just add to add the magical element on after. Yeah. Does being a person of faith help with that as well? No, I mean I kind of divide my own religious practice from the book. It's funny cuz I I talk a lot about um magic and sort of even the czar scenes from the first from the first book, Um, but my own practice is quite boring and orthodox. But so, you know, I kind of view it as like, this is interesting more than this is actually applicable to my life. Mm. Um, And it's kind of cool just, you know, like to see how people worked that history, because there's always been, you know, this sort of debate in in our own texts of, you know, can you tell this story? It has magic in it. Or, you know, can you say this? Does it violate this? And it's just interesting to see, you know, from a, from sort of a human perspective, the different ways people have kind of worked that out. Um, and it's also interesting because, you know, writing a historical story, people y- use that element a lot more. And I kind of feel like even this is, you know, I can have a whole conversation about czars, which is the um, sort of exorcism ceremony used in the beginning of the book when people feel like they've been possessed by jinn. And I feel like I can get on my, you know, 21st century Orthodox uh you know soapbox and be like oh this is not you know this is this violates certain you know tenets of islam but that's easy for me to say when i have access mm. to modern medicine and modern healthcare and therapy i don't necessarily know that 200 years ago i should be judging a mother who believed the best course of action for her child was to engage in something that might have had you know roots that that today we don't really approve of
0: right i mean i was raised i was raised jewish so it's right. not it's not a dissimilar sort of debate and learn philosophy of, you know, discussion about things and debate about things. And as we learn and, ad- and adapt about things. So I definitely I hear what you're saying. Yeah.
1: <laughs> in, in, in your writing, though, is it helpful to distinguish between history and religion or are they really inseparable in the story that you're telling?
2: I think religion is an inseparable part of human society and history um, really no matter what you think about it Mm -hmm. um, this is my favorite time of year for people to tell me we live in a secular society (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah it's just a huge it's a huge part and as I feel like as a storyteller especially if you're setting anything any story involved with people you really do yourself a disservice from not having that element from everything you know the way we eat the holidays we celebrate the way we interact with each other. Um, a lot of that is built in, you know, to a religious background, and you don't even have to be a believer. Not being a believer has its own, you know, statements in in society. So I think it's something that, you know, you should really use when you're coming up with a world. And then to take it back from sort of religion and society, faith for a lot of people is a huge motivator. Um, it can be a motivator for evil, it can be a motivator for good. And it's, it's, when you're telling a story, and you're kind of, getting into characters. I'm, for me as a person, this is kind of how I think when I write Ali, um, you know, it means a lot to sit in the quiet of your soul and feel torn between what your religion says and maybe what your family says. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, when you're, you're despairing, that you would turn to prayer. And I feel like having had those experiences, I do try to bring that to the book. And I feel like a lot of people have that. I, I think even for people who are not religious or are religious you do experience you know these strong emotions and 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 spirituality and i think bringing that in adds an extra level to characters i love when people are like are you are you taking a couple of days off for hanukkah
0: and i'm like (laughs) that that's not a thing (laughs) (laughs) um exactly yeah that that's just not a a a thing that hanukkah is not that big of a deal (laughs) because you guys think it is because of christmas give Mithra his hat back please
2: <laughs> yeah I mean there's a whole conversation to be had the right. roots of Christmas. <laughs> um, so I do follow you on
0: Twitter and I saw recently that um, you are taking a trip to the British Museum to yes. look at an exhibit of weapons which as a fellow girl <laughs> who likes weapons I thought was awesome um what What is really interesting about that exhibit that you're going to, to take a look at it? That's a big trip.
2: So, yeah. So, this one's not actually about weapons, although, to be fair, I would do that. <laughs> 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 I would do that. That's this, like. Yeah, oh, this mother, one is about oh, – they're having a special – yeah, they're having a special exhibit um, about Assyria. And it's just – I've heard from friends who have been particularly academic friends that, you know, you don't often see – all of this material collected together and the way it's presented um with certain lights illuminating how the reliefs and everything were painted everybody i've talked to has said it's spectacular um and so i've been watching this it's only there for like three four months and i've been quietly jealous (laughs) and then you know there was another exhibit on on you know historical magic at um another museum and then another friend was like oh you have to go and see you know the new islamic art galleries <laughs> at, mm. you know the VA are fantastic and people kept telling me this and i was like i can't really arrange a trip to london just to see stuff <laughs> from the sure, islamic world sure can you I? can like, yes yeah there's a lot to unpack there but, um, <laughs> but i'm going and it's, it's funny because even i was trying to arrange care i have a, I have a young child and my parents saw right through my excuse. They're like, oh, you're going to London. What would you like to see in London? <laughs> you know? And as soon as I started to be like, well, they're having an exhibit about a rock with just everything, the, the excuse went completely away. <laughs> it's for work. Yeah, it's exactly. research. It is for work.
0: <laughs> um, since I did bring up weapons, even though it's only tangentially related, I... Um, I noticed that um, you choose the weapons for your characters very carefully. This is a totally weird me question because I'm fascinated by weapons. I have a whole Pinterest board of weapons as a writer for my characters. um, How do you choose weapons for your characters? And do you always, you know, choosing a weapon for a character who's a warrior, I feel like is as important as choosing that character's name um, do you always, do you, does the weapon ever choose the character? Does the character choose the weapon? How does that work for you?
2: Well, I know be- this is a totally random question. I'm so It's sorry. not a random question. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I try to keep it a little rooted in the own, in the own sort of mythology I've built for the world. That if mm-hmm. I say, okay, this group, um, was, was punished by, you know, the prophet Suleiman and, and sent to the Indus Valley civilization, you know, 3,000 years ago. I tried to think, okay, we have creatures who have been used to using magic to defend themselves. They're sent off, they don't have much magic. What in that area would they use? Would they look to see what the humans were using? Would they look to see which metals were available? So I tried to kind of be like, okay, if they said, you know, how do we fight? And they looked to the humans nearest them, what weapons they would pick up. Um, For... Dara, it was very easy, you know, I, I wanted him to kind of come from, you know, the steps of, of Iran and Central Asia, and they are renowned archers. I mean, they were really, you could say they were the first to invent sort of like, you know, the mounted archery and, and the, the ways you would do that. Even today, you can see some of the, the um, you know, just you have people who recreate this, and it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to watch. So I very much, you know, I knew I wanted to have that element of his character before, like, there was a plot. <laughs> so, you know, it was just so emblematic of of the region and the history and everything where I wanted to have this warrior character. It was kind of like I couldn't have chosen anything else.
1: One of the things that I, since we're talking about process, um, found really fascinating is I I was reading, and you said that when you hit a wall or you have quote-unquote writer's block, you just write side stories, like side quests or or, or stories (laughs) set in the world in a totally different time. How does that help you? And, I mean, if if you're stuck... If you think that you have writer's block and you're stuck with the main story, how can you sit down and write a short story set in the same world?
2: When I have writer's block, um, and I don't have it often, I now have the opposite problem of just not having enough time to sit down and write. Mm-hmm. So by the time I sit down, I usually have, you know, 50 things I want to work on. Um, but a lot of times my thing is more I want to tell a story, it's more the actual sitting and writing and making of prose that I'm, I'm struggling with. So sometimes just being able to work on something that I don't have the pressure of somebody needs to read these words and judge them, you know, I can kind of just feel a little looser. And sometimes after getting that down, writing a few pages of something I don't expect anyone to see, I kind of I'm like, Oh, yes, now I remember how to craft words. Mm. Let me go back to the projects I'm supposed to be working on
1: how much of that made it in some form into the books or did any of it? Um,
2: maybe half, you know, it's, it's, I'm trying to you know, I kind of keep some of this stuff aside that I think to myself, Oh, you know, maybe I could use it one day, but a lot of it's, I guess it's in a way fan fiction for my own book. It seems that I wish I could have in the book, but I know just in terms of plot or even in terms of, those characters don't have voices in the main book, I'll never get to show it. So I can kind of just play on the side, and then, you know, maybe one day I'll bring in an element of it, and sometimes it'll it'll be rooted in some of the backstory that yeah. will then come up in the book, but not a lot of it makes it through.
1: Yeah. Well, since you mentioned fan fiction again, now I'm going to use that as my entry to ask <laughs> you about Harry Potter. Tell us about what that story was.
2: <laughs> Gosh, I'm trying to remember, because I was 16. I mean... <laughs> I'm sure it was bad. <laughs> yeah.
1: Do you remember <laughs> I mean, which, which character it was about?
2: Um, I think it was a new character. I think it was supposed to be like, Voldemort had probably like a secret child or something. <laughs> Gosh, I'm trying to think, because for the longest time, you know, I wrote it when I was in high school, um, like younger in high school, and I enjoyed doing it, you know, I, I with a friend of mine, you know, we would, we would post it and, and, you know, work on each other's, and then I got swallowed by college, and like, forgot about it then started writing my own story and then i was like in the back of my mind i was like didn't i used to do things with writing <laughs> and i had my friend you know years after bring it up and i was like oh yeah you know that's i i forgot about that and i don't know that i want to go back and look for that yeah
1: like i'm a little scared to go back and read that at this yes, point
2: <laughs> yes but it was like fun i mean I, I i love it i think you know sometimes people ding on fan fiction and it's all i mean why people are enjoying reading and writing and creating and playing in worlds especially you know if as a writer like if i if i felt like i created a world that was expansive enough that people could set their own thing in that's fantastic was it victoria who told us she she
0: for many reasons can't read the fan fiction but yes. she has her agent read
1: it yeah Vic- oh really? Vic- victoria <laughs> yeah. victoria schwab has said there she's like <laughs> she blamed it on the law she's like there's whole there's like legal issues with her reading fan fiction that's based in her worlds because if she were to inadvertently take a plot point or something that appeared in one of those and then use it in the actual book, then the fanfic writer could come after her for copyright infringement, basically.
0: But but she has her agent read it and Uh summarize for her. And she (laughs) particularly enjoys making her read some of the, uh, shall we say racier? Yeah.
1: (laughs) See, and that's what I meant. Like we was, At the top of the conversation. That's what I typically think of as fan fiction. So when you called City of Brass historical fan fiction, I was like, a little confused. Because like,
2: no, I don't see it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I think I was, especially when I was younger and I wrote it, I was quite sheltered. <laughs> I not really realized some of those elements until I was older and people were like, you know, bring that up. I was like, oh, uh, oh yeah. okay, that's, it's, that's what that is.
1: It's, it's fan fiction that a history nerd would write and I love that. Yes. <laughs> I've
2: accidentally gone down
0: some rabbit holes I didn't mean to go down and then like you can't stop and then hours later you just
1: Yeah, you need eat, to take a shower. You
0: your brain. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You have said though, that this trilogy, um, you wrote specifically for your community, for a Muslim community, so that they would have a book that represented them and that was relatively free from cliches and misconceptions and the the problems that plague other books that are set in this with this setting or with this called cult, these cultures and these People. So I guess I want to ask, how have the books so far, and your descriptions of those people and places, how have they been received in those communities?
2: I mean, it's been incredible. I have to say, like, during the the darkest parts of, I'm um, like, I don't want to do this anymore. The work is too much. Um, it's too stressful. You know, I get e- I'll get i get an email from, you know, like a 17-year-old g- girl who, who just writes me, and they're like, I haven't seen something like this, and I love it. And that's, it's just, that's the exact reason I do this. I yeah. mean, I, I didn't really think... Um, when I was kind of putting it out there, you know, I talked about like, you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to publish or anything, but another one of the breaks for me was when I was working, I want to say it was like 10 years ago, um... And I lived in Brooklyn and I was, I, you know, I was, I worked at my local mosque and I was the volunteer coordinator and it came out the whole NYPD spying thing. Mm-hmm. And it was just another thing of like, you know, it was like, we just couldn't get a break. And it particularly at the time, you know, I was working with a lot of kids trying to help them find or kids. I say kids, but, you know, people going into college trying to find, you know, work that they could do for nonprofit organizations of volunteering. And it was just extremely frustrating to see yet again, especially a lot of the young men in our community get painted with this brush. And I was just kind of like, you know, to hell with the outside world. I was like, we should have something fun, you mm-hmm. know, and we did have stuff. We we do have stuff like that. I mean, I, I like to think a lot of the reason I was even able to publish this was because I had writers come before me like G. Willow Wilson and Saladin Ahmed, and they found success in this. But I wanted to just create another another story, you know, we of something that had sort of the literary equivalent of going and watching you know lord of the rings on as a summer blockbuster of like this grand heroic swashbuckling tale um and i felt like because i had all of this history background like it was something i could kind of do and use that it didn't just have to be oh the middle east i could also talk about the places you know where you saw in east and west africa and it could just be like this tale about like all various parts of of the Islamic world and in sort of a celebratory fashion that was fun and breathless and exciting and was something we could enjoy. Right
0: before I read, I read city of brass. I happened to read um, a spark of white fire. So I kind of got immersed in these non Western based sci-fi fantasy books. And right before that I read children of blood and bone. So I've had this really good good. run of, of non Western western-based fantasy that i'm really enjoying
2: yeah there's great stuff out there i feel like there seems to finally be a point um you know the voices have always been out there the writers have always been out there you know they've just been told oh we don't have a market for this or oh we don't have this so it's like i feel like it took the smashing success of a lot of books like this and people are like you know the very white face of publishing is starting to kind of be like oh Mm -hmm. people read these things maybe we should publish more of them and there's still so much work to do um but it does feel like finally more and more of these things are being published and and pushed and promoted right as these writers deserve
1: Mm yeah um what's another thing that's interesting is that and i don't quite know how to word this but books like yours and books and shows like Game of Thrones you know like they they immerse the reader the viewer in this completely other context but then you get totally wrapped up in these political wheelings and dealings of this world that you really have no stake in what is it do you think about that escapism that we're able to really connect to those um political machinations but yet still so remain so detached from our own very real political system like what why do people from your perspective like why do people still draw that line that it's okay for me to care about game of thrones and who's sitting on the iron throne but i really don't care about congress i really don't care about the very real things that affect me
2: um i don't really know because i feel like i don't know a lot of people like that Um, to be honest, I try to stay fairly politically engaged and I feel like that's, it's, when people say things like that, it's a very privileged position to not have to worry about those things because those politics that, you know, some people like, oh, it doesn't affect me. Well, very much affects a lot of people. It kills people. Um, and I think, you know, to, to kind of just say that it's escapism necessarily doesn't work. I mean, I know when I'm writing, I very much try to bring in elements of that, um, it's funny because for everything I've seen some of the reviews they you know that are always like oh you know S.H. Chakraborty writes about this because it's you know like it's islam and like that's a conflicted region and they you know mm. they have their terrorism problem and you know the second book is all about you know working from a position of privilege to realize your your ruling class has destroyed many elements of this and I mean there is just as much about the American political system in this book I mean I I wrote this the this, this certain scene in the first book um when ali's standing in the quarter that his family has taken over and you know they it's that view that that could have been a scene from an american soldier standing in iraq um and you know there's those elements that you know this is what humans do and and this is the way things have kind of always been done with with oppression and uh, persecution and i think those are very real things and i think examining them in fiction is good because it's a vehicle for people to discuss it in a way that maybe, you know, it wakes them up of, oh, if this happens here, mm-hmm. you know, maybe how does that apply to my own society?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think the people, you know, that, that mindset that, I can escape into these fantasy worlds because it's fantasy and it's escapism and and not worry about the real world. I think those people also are missing the author's true intent in that, you know, like they're actually commenting on the real world or they're actually making parallels. And I think it just flies over a lot, far too many heads, which is just terribly unfortunate.
0: (laughs) Well, and as someone who lives in Pittsburgh, I can tell you that, uh, all of a sudden it's gonna could happen around the corner, yeah, yeah, literally,
1: literally, yeah, so
0: um people should pay more attention, maybe,
2: yes, exactly, <laughs> and I think it says something too it's it's interesting to me because you know people will look you know, whenever I, there's a, you know, a political thing that happens in the world, and it seems schemy and manipulative, I see that people compare it to Game of Thrones. And it's interesting, because I don't think a lot of people seem to realize that our politicians are human, and they are driven by very human vices and strengths. And I think we tend to see this sort of soulless machine. And I think for a lot of people, um, it's kind of like, oh, it hums along, when it doesn't necessarily. And it's, it's, made of some very flawed people and that should be scary and can Mm -hmm. be scary to realize that you know there is more behind the scenes than just oh the the bureaucratic machine keeps churning on um you should have faces to those people
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um all right let's let's turn it around before we before
0: we on a lighter note (laughs) on a lighter
1: note shiri I, i know shiri wanted to you wanted to ask her about food right
0: I have two questions, actually. Two lighter note mm-hmm. questions. Um, two things. So I was looking on your website, um, and there are two interests that you mentioned that I thought were really interesting and I want to ask you more about. Um, the first one is it, uh, your bio mentions an interest in Mughal miniatures. Tell yes. us about that a little bit.
2: Well, it's funny because I, you know, I I think back to my academic interests and it's very much, you know, it's 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 the Middle East, it's it's sort of the um the, spec- the specter of the Abbasid Caliphate, which is, you know, centered in Iraq and in and, and those outlying areas, but then I have a major fashion um for Mughal India, which is centuries later and much further east, and for that was probably one of my real History loves when I was still at the point I, I I was kind of like no I should do international politics and relations it it works so much better and it's more practical I just got really captivated by the art um it's absolutely beautiful and astounding and and I I just like I would go in college and stuff to to museums to see this stuff and I'd never seen art like that before and I just I love it I mean if you ever get a chance to go in into some of the galleries that exhibit this stuff I mean it just the detail is incredible I the the faces are like so small and they, you know, communicate so, so much. And it's, you know, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's just, that's not like I have absolutely no academic background in describing that stuff. I just love it. And I, I love the way that, you know, that they commissioned books for a lot of the older folk folklore. So you see, you know, it's a Mughal Indian book, but it's, you know, an older Persian story. It's just, it's great. It's like this whole like cultural syncretism thing you have going on.
0: I went to college in DC, so we used to go to the National Gallery a lot and look at oh, okay, at their collection.
2: yes, me too. Yes, I the Sackler. I used to go there when I was in college. Yes, me too. Yes. Where'd you go to school? American University. Okay, I went to GW. Oh, okay, yes. It's okay. We don't have to fight. <laughs> I'm not going to fight. I have no. I, I'm not a big defender. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll just leave it at that. Okay. Okay. Um, the other
0: thing I noticed because it's totally something that I would do mm-hmm. is that um, it's your bio also said that you like to recreate medieval meals for your family, and I must know more about that.
2: So I do that, and it's funny because I, I, in recent months, I've started posting some of the results and recipes on Twitter. I love to cook. I mean, I've loved to cook since I was a kid, and it's interesting because you see a huge growth in cookbooks um, in the medieval Islamic world. It's kind of like in terms of like historical cookbooks, Cookbooks. We have like a couple from the Roman time, a couple from um, Babylonian times, then really nothing. And then there's just this explosion of cookbooks in the Middle East from like the 9th through the 13th century. And if you delve into it a bit, it's great. I mean, not only was cuisine considered a high art, you know, this was something, you know, people competed in this. And it was sort of a holdover from the um, pre-Islamic Persia of, you know, that princes would would have sort of cooking competitions and, you know, everything was like fancy and it was a a form of prestige. So these cookbooks are preserved and there's a lot of them and you can find great English translations of of a lot of them. I mean, there's probably at least a dozen cookbooks you can go out and find out there. And I like to cook and I really like to see the different ways, you know, recipes have changed and evolved Um, some of the cuisine you'll look at it and go and you can see parallels to you know contemporary regional cuisine and some of the stuff not at all and it's just it's fun I like to kind of play with it and play with ingredients and see if I can recreate it um because it's very good I mean these recipes are not necessarily you know street food or what most people ate in fact they can be very snobbish um if you're reading the description they're kind of like you know this is not for common people um so it's you know these recipes you're creating things that would have been on the banquet of you know a sultan and it's it's i just i find it a lot of fun so was the was so the cooking contest in
0: in kingdom of copper is based on something that would have actually happened absolutely that's so cool
2: (laughs) and i had so much i i don't think i have delighted in writing something as much as i have the cooking competition in the kingdom of copper (laughs)
1: This has been The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at The Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I'm Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Robots. Take care.